Well, I think many of us know, maybe we haven't fully grasped, but many of us know that we are living in a time where the very concept of authority is on trial. Trust in all public institutions is plummeting. And government and medical, journalistic, corporate, religious, so on and so forth. On, the other, on one hand, rather, it's easy to understand why our fellow citizens may feel this way. It's easy to understand the mistrust because we know that corruption runs deep and wide in these human systems. We've seen it for years. Maybe we've even, even experienced it at our own expense firsthand. We know that human beings and power are easily corrupted, and so it's understandable that people get rather cynical about institutional authority. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, what we're left with is not really that much better, if any better. Because when all else fails, when all external human authority seems to be untrustworthy, the thing that we rely on, the thing that we trust in is ourselves. And really, this, my goodness, this is a thoroughly American idea. It's not one of the better American things that we have. Because you see this in every advertisement, news interview, kids cartoon. If you trust in yourself supremely, you'll be all right. That's a message that we hear in our world today. But the problem comes when 330 million people that live in this nation, roughly, when they all trust in themselves as a supreme authority, when they distrust all institutional authority and trust in themselves instead, what we have is 330 million institutions. And all of them are conflicting with one another. And so what we find is what we've been seeing so very clearly in our society in recent years, a society of me-firsters, of people that are all about themselves and their own glory, who become idolatrous and hateful and unforgiving and violent and finally just implode in on themselves. And so, it seems as if we are caught then between a rock and a hard place. Because if we put our faith in the authority of human institutions, we'll be disappointed. But if we put our faith in the authority of human individuals, we'll be equally disappointed too. And so it seems like trusting big groups and trusting just ourselves are both things that lead to a dead end. But the fact of the matter is that human beings need authority. We need something that can guide us as individuals to come together and live collectively in peace together so that we're able to flourish, so that we're able to help one another, so that we're able to survive. And not only survive, but to thrive. So we might ask ourselves, especially on a day like today, what are we as Christians supposed to do in a time like this and with a crisis like this? Well, our passage of Scripture, I think, speaks so clearly, I believe. It speaks so convictingly and yet so comfortingly to our current historical moment. Because Peter is proclaiming here, by the way, as he is being led out to his own crucifixion, 
as his personal liberties and rights and freedoms are being totally taken away as he's being unfairly led out to his death, Peter proclaims with a whole heart that we should trust not in governmental authority, not in our own personal authority, but in God's authority, which is revealed to us by the Spirit-inspired and Christ-centered Holy Scriptures. Peter's shorthand for this is biblical. uh, Peter's shorthand for this is that biblical authority is the term prophecy, is what he uses. Which is simply the teaching of God's Spirit through God's Word that centers us on God's Son. And it's this kind of authority that our church and our community so desperately needs. Again, not the authority of the government, not the authority of the free market, not the authority of the self, but what we need is the authority of the Holy Spirit who prophesies to us through the Scriptures the mercy of the Son and the glory of God. That's the authority that we need. Now last week, Peter reminded us three times that the greatest, one of the greatest acts of worship and witness that we could possibly uh, be participants in as Christians is to be people that remember. But remember what? We would be to be people that remember our roots in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To remember His power. To remember that this means that we are partakers in God's nature. We're supposed to remember our roots in the Gospel. But we're also supposed to remember our duty to now, because that Gospel is true, to grow into Christ-likeness. To grow more like the Lord and Savior who saves us. Because all authority in this world, Peter would have us know, is wasting away every last shred of it. Our bodies grow older and weaker. Our societies grow darker and dimmer. And even our own planet grows more unstable and dangerous all the time. Some of the things we've seen in the news this week happening in Canada on the West Coast are are harrowing. People are dying from heat waves, lightning strikes that create Uh, that create uh, these massive forest fires, droughts, explosions in the ocean. It, It shows that this planet is really not our friend either. But as all these things are ripped out from under us, what Peter calls us to as Christians is to remember the Gospel. Because that and that alone gives us real and tangible hope for a future that God is bringing to us. A future of restoration. A future of peace. A future of resurrection. See, the scientists and sociologists all agree, whether they're religious or not, they all agree that there is no final hope in this world. One day, it will betray us. There is no hope in the reality we see before our eyes. No elected official, no cutting-edge technology, no social reform can save us. And that's why Peter says we must remember the crucified Christ that already has. That's the difference. And so this morning, Peter expounds on this further. 
And so now Peter, who is facing his impending execution from the powers that be, it seems like this would be a perfect time for him to lay out a plan of succession to to point us to the authorities that we can trust after he and the rest of the apostles are gone. It seems like the perfect time to establish some institution that we can trust in, some charismatic figure that we can trust in. Someone who can lead us, some place that we can go after the apostles are dead and gone. Remember, he's writing this to exiles that are scattered. They don't have any clout with any big government group. They don't have any sort of recognizability even within their own neighborhoods. They're just on their own, it seems. From a human perspective, we should say. So which specific individuals, which specific institutions should we trust in? What does Peter say here? Folks, this is really amazing when you think about it. Peter does not give us a line of apostolic succession. Meaning that he doesn't point us to any pope or pastor. He doesn't point us to any congregation or any convention. He doesn't point us to any individuals or any institutions that can save us. Instead, Peter invests no authority in any of that, but doubles and triples and quadruples down on the authority of the Scriptures that reveal God to us. That's where we find authority. That's where we find hope. That's where we find peace. See, Peter, I believe, and this is my Baptist root showing, Peter, I believe, is more interested not in the apostolic succession of people and institutions that are going to keep the church going, that are going to keep Christianity running, I mean, we've seen 2,000 years of how that works out. We started with one holy Christian church, and now there's a million denominations, and we all hate each other's guts. And you can be this kind of Baptist, you can be a free will Baptist and hate the Reformed Baptist, and the Reformed Baptist thinks that, uh, that they get along with the Presbyterians, but the Presbyterians think they're fake Baptists, and the Presbyterians think they get along with the, the Anglicans. The Anglicans can't stand the, the, the Presbyterians and the Anglicans think, oh, well, we'll get along with the Lutherans, and the Lutherans hate the Anglicans. It's just silly what happens. So Peter is not, is, is not giving us any institutions to hope in. He knows in, in, human institutions run by human sinners, even nice ones, end up collapsing in on themselves. In other words, Peter doesn't care so much about apostolic succession as he cares about the apostolic message. What it is that we believe in. Who it is we believe in that saves us. Because whether we're a big, fancy, you know, well-attended high church somewhere in you know, Bavaria, or we're in a little small you know, suburban church like we are here in, in Lilburn, Georgia, It's not the institution that saves us. It's not the pastor that saves us. It's the Lord that saves us. And that Lord is revealed to us through the Scriptures preached and prayed. So in other words, what he cares so much more about than than following the, 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 the roles or the offices of those that teach and lead, what Peter's really interested in here 
is following the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, even above following the prophets and the apostles themselves. Look at Peter. My goodness, this is, I think about this often. I think our, some of our friends in the, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, there's this, I know this is so hackneyed for a Baptist to be going after Catholics right now, so forgive me. But I, I think about our, our Catholic brothers and sisters that know and love the Lord Jesus, and I think, my goodness, these people are really high and mighty and say that Peter is their first pope. Peter! Peter, who is recognized by the authorities as an illiterate, uneducated man. And they have all these big, beautiful cathedrals, and they wear all these nice, fancy gowns and have all these gold chasubles and everything, they walk around so high and mighty, and yet Peter is supposed to be their first pope. I think about that, the irony of that. See, folks, it's not about any one person. It's not about any one uh, personality. It's not about one, any one um, human individual or any one institution. It's about the authority that God puts in any person that follows and trusts in Jesus. This is why we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Because there's nothing special and particular about me being up here. If God called and equipped anybody, they could be up here doing this. Anybody. It doesn't have to be one person. There's nothing special about me in particular. This is the beauty of the Gospel, is that, that uh, the, the freedom, the, 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 uh, the wonderful grace of our Lord equips and calls all sorts of people that have no institutional power. True authority, then, is not vested in any one person, but the power of the Spirit who prophetically speaks God's Word in whatever situation He pleases. And yet, despite this authority, despite this, what Peter's saying, notice here that he's having to say this because he's, it seems like he's being defensive. He's having to defend himself against some sort of um, uh, implicit accusation here that we're not totally sure of. But he's responding to what we believe. He's responding to philosophical skeptics. People who lob accusations that the story that Peter is, is, is teaching, the story of Jesus, is just a metaphor. He's, Peter's getting too hung up on this, this, this uh, resurrection and return of Jesus. That's what the, the skeptics are telling him. These people call themselves Christians, but only in the sense that their Christianity is uh, philosophical or political or, or some kind of personal psychology. It's, in other words, it's a Christianity that's only cultural. It's a Christianity that tries to debunk any actual authority by downgrading the prophets and the apostles to creative fiction writers that get at something of the human spirit, but don't actually say anything that's true. They dismiss the good news as not really good news, but just a clever myth that religious people came up with to make themselves feel better. But Peter in verse 16 responds like somebody who's willing to die, not for a myth, but for truth. He says, we didn't follow a myth. We experienced the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The power being Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection by which the world has been freed from sin and death. The, the coming of the Lord Jesus is His return where, in which He will come to the world in some way and judge it. Judge all the evil that's running rampant out there in the world. The way we hurt one another. The way that powerful people crush others. The way that we take advantage. The way that we steal and rob and, and violate each other. All that Jesus is going to deal with one day. And yet, at the same time, He will make all things new that find their whole being in Him. He'll be so merciful, even though some of the worst criminals that have ever lived, some of the worst scoundrels and scumbags that have ever existed, who have put their faith and trust and repented of themselves and their actions and thrown themselves on the mercy of Jesus, will find healing and redemption. That's a scandalous message in our day and age. When everybody's angry at everybody else for everything, we just always just so mad at each other for just some serious stuff. Some, 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 sometimes there's little stupid things that we get so angry about with each other. It's almost as if we don't really believe this Gospel is true, that Jesus forgives people radically. And so we ought to, in the same sense, Learn to be forgiving ourselves. See, the Jesus that Peter's accusers believe in. And they'll say, this is the amazing thing, the people that Peter is, is, uh, is, saying, is being attacked by here and is, is saying that are coming after him, these people call themselves Christians too. There's nothing magical about saying, I'm a Christian. Because all throughout the New Testament, we meet people that say they're Christians and yet do Nothing, live nothing, believe nothing like the Jesus that we believe in. Because there are tons of false Jesuses, not only in our day, but back in Peter's day too. Jesuses that are stripped of all His holy and apocalyptic power. A Jesus, the Jesus that these people believe in is one that's totally metaphorical. A Jesus that's completely mythological. He's interchangeable with with, um, uh, with any of the other local deities that seem to have the same characteristics just because he's just an archetype. He's not real. He's just a myth. And so these people that accuse Peter are, are, are ones that say they believe in Jesus, but they believe in Jesus, interestingly, that allows them to be as materialistic as possible. Hoarding all their money and wealth and stealing from anybody living almost kind of a Darwinist existence. The, 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 the fittest survive, economically, fiscally, whatever. So they, it's interesting that they can live this incredibly materialistic and me, me, me-centered reality and say that, well, Jesus told them to do that. Folks, let's be brutally honest this morning. We're people that believe in the truth. Christians say we believe in the truth, so we ought to be able to speak and hear the truth sometimes. There are many fake Jesuses in America today. Let's point some of them out. Any Jesus who tells us that our individual liberties or freedoms are more important than us loving and forgiving one another is a fake and false Jesus. 
Any Jesus who condones us spending every last dime on ourselves and sneering at people that don't have as much as we do because they didn't work hard for it like I did, that's a false and a fake Jesus. Any Jesus who lets us say whatever we want to whoever we want and take whatever we want and do whatever we want because it's our right as an American, that is a fake and a false Jesus. That's the Jesus that's the cleverly contrived myth. In our modern world, some skeptical historians and theologians have sometimes used this. They did this a lot in the 20th century. They talked about the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. This is a, just sometimes, you know, I, I'm a person that I, I have friends that are in the academy, they work at universities. I love learning from people. I think it's a wonderful thing. Learning and education is a blessing. We're very thankful for the education that we can receive um, here in, in this country. Education is a good thing. But sometimes, my goodness, I get so <laughs> just disillusioned with education that can talk about the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. These people that think they're so clever that say, yes, we, okay, of course we agree that there was a first century Jewish rabbi, itinerant minister named Jesus of Nazareth that went around Galilee. You know, we believe that he was a historical person. That's the Jesus of history. But the Christ of faith, this one that was uh, supposed to be uh, Israel's Messiah, this one that was supposed to be the Savior of the world, who, who, who made wine at a wedding, who, who raised a little dead girl from, from death, uh, who went to a cross and died. And, oh, that's just that's the Christ of faith. He's just a made-up messianic mythology. But Peter responds to every one of his naysayers, both the ancient ones in his day and the modern ones with PhDs. He says the same thing. He says, I witnessed His power with my own eyes. And I know that that one will come into our world again. Because the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are one and the same. You think Peter, who's about to be stripped naked, beaten and crucified upside down, is doing it for a myth? Or is he doing it for the one true man? He and the apostles were eyewitnesses to the real Jesus. Of verses 17-19. through 19. The Jesus that radiates the majesty and glory and honor of God in heaven, but He shares it with us here on earth. The Jesus whom God the Father says by God the Spirit, this is my beloved Son and He pleases me to no end. The Jesus by whom the law of Moses and the prophecies of Elijah stoop and bow. The Jesus whose word is a shining lamp unto our feet and a bright and morning star unto our path. See, this is the Jesus whom the apostles saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears that walked on the road with them, that told stories and laughed at jokes with them, that ate food huddled around a campfire with them, 
that healed their infirmities, that comforted them in their anxiety. This Jesus that seemed like He was just a mere man showed Himself on the holy mountain of transfiguration to also be God in the flesh for them. And in verse 19, this is the same Jesus. The same Jesus who Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament have been talking about all along. Their prophetic word and witness are confirmed in this Jesus. This is why he says that we ought to pay attention to the prophecy of the Old Testament. I want to congratulate you. I know many of you have been reading the Old Testament with us, and if you got through Jeremiah, my hat's off to you. What a slog that is sometimes. But the, the, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Amos, and the prophet Obadiah, and, and the lamentations of, 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 of Jerusalem, and, and, the, and, and the, the Proverbs of Solomon, these things that seem just so mysterious and strange to us, all of these things, all of them point to Jesus. All of them. Peter says here that Jesus is a lamp shining in dark places. And you read that and think of Psalm 119 and Psalm 23. You think of David, this, this miserable, awful... <laughs> I, you know, I, the more I read about David, the only way I can view him positively is because the Lord loved him. What a crook and criminal that guy was so often. But the David that, that wrote these psalms about a, a coming light, about a shepherd that steers us through the valley of the shadow of death. Peter writes about him here as, as that's Jesus. When we read in Isaiah about the bright and morning star, the day spring, the one that rises in our hearts just as much as it rises in the heavens, when Isaiah writes about that in his scrolls, that's Jesus. And Peter quotes that here all the things that we see in the real person of Jesus, in His real work and history, those things that the prophets wrote about, those things are being confirmed in the life and the story of Jesus. His power to overcome crucifixion by resurrection is real. His power to return in righteousness and justice and set all the bad things in this world right and to, at the same time, bring all of creation into resurrection and healing and consummation forever. That's real too. No matter what any doubter or disbeliever might have you think. No matter what any cynic or skeptic try to jam down your throat. And now after shouting this from the metaphorical mountaintop, Peter in verses 20 and 21, he draws us in close to quietly and convincingly remind us. He says, above all, you know this, Christians. What do we know? He says, you know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Well, what does that mean? Well, first, let's remind ourselves what prophecy is all about. And I know that we are made nervous by that word prophecy because we're nice and calm and rational and sophisticated Baptists. 
and the idea of prophecy or prophesying. Or maybe even the Holy Spirit makes us nervous. But what the Bible means by it is actually quite simple. A prophet is a messenger of God. And a prophecy is a divine and apocalyptic. That doesn't, remember, that doesn't mean end of the world, scary, zombies, werewolves, aliens, whatever. That's not what apocalyptic means. Apocalyptic in its true sense just means revealing. Prophecy is a divine, revealing message of God. Now sometimes, in the Old Testament especially, prophecy does have a seemingly future-predicting aspect to it. But the reality is that most of the prophecy of the Bible, most of the prophecy that's being talked about, vast majority of it, is simply speaking the message of God to people in the here and the now from God's perspective. That's what prophecy is really about. A biblical prophet, then, is just a preacher of what God has already revealed in God's revealing Word. And in the Old Testament and the New, prophecy equals preaching in the sense that that preaching points out the message of God for people in the here and the now. So let's read those verses again. Above all, you know this, Christians, that no preaching of Scripture comes from the preacher's own interpretation because no preaching ever came by the will of man, but instead man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, in a time in which all authority seems to be under the gun, some of that may be good, some of that may be bad, but Christians can rest knowing that the Jesus who lived and died and rose and ascended for us and who will return again to complete our salvation, that Jesus is authoritatively, authentically, and apocalyptically revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets saw Jesus from afar through a glass darkly, it would seem, and the apostles saw Him up close. They saw the pores on His skin, the sweat on His brow, the beard on His face. They saw God in the flesh. And what they did in response is tried to as best they could with their frail and, and warped and arthritis-ridden hands and milky eyes that needed cataract surgery before cataract surgery was a thing. They wrote these things down in the Scriptures for us. Often, which led them to their own martyrdom You know what they got out of talking about this mythological God? They got killed for it. Nobody in their right minds goes to their death so willingly over a lie that they say they've seen. They did it so that we might know, as the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of God the Father, with whom He is very well pleased. But the true author of all these things are not merely human writers. We believe the Scriptures are human words. That's what, to me, that's what makes the Scriptures so amazing. Is that these are human words written by human people that have limited perspective. 
No, there is not a 1,500-year-long email chain going between these guys about how can we trick everybody into believing that this is one coherent story that points to Christ. These people didn't know each other. They didn't speak the same language. They didn't live in the same place. They didn't even know about their, each other's ministries. And yet they all, in one accord, write through the one true author, the Holy Spirit of God who amazingly speaks in the elementary school level Greek grammar of Mark and Peter, who seem like they could barely write the stories of Jesus without spelling His name wrong. God speaks through that. And yet God also speaks through the magnificent, beautiful poetry of the Hebrew Scriptures. Like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And through all of their silly and limited and human thoughts and words, stuck back in an ancient past, the living and Holy Spirit of God prophesies and preaches to us today. And Maranatha, the Holy Spirit prophesies through you. Every time you teach a children's Sunday school class, or every time you pray a psalm, with a homebound senior saint, or every time you share the gospel through stutters and ums and well actuallys with coworkers or family members, every time you stand up on a Sunday morning like this and give testimony about who God is and what Christ has done for you, and when you come to this Lord's supper table with all your flaws, with all your foibles, with all your sins, and with all your sorrows, the Spirit of God preaches and prophesies about Jesus to the world through you. Because it's not up to our own interpretation. It's not up to our own authority. It's up to the authority of God through the Holy Spirit who prophesies through the Scriptures whenever they're read. Well, poorly, it doesn't matter. God speaks through this Bible, whether it's the Christian Standard Bible, the King James Bible, a Spanish Bible, a Hindi Bible, He speaks His Word through it. And He preaches through His church. And all their limitations, and all our lack of knowledge, and all our doubt and disbelief, when we come together and praise His name, the Spirit of God preaches and prophesies through us. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this supper table of Your Son this morning, by the Spirit's power and authority, interpret in our hearts its meaning and preach and prophesy to our community Your holy and loving and Your sovereign and compassionate authority for us and our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name alone that we now ask and pray. Amen.